Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, this is Tommy from Ops Analytica. The Ops Analytica platform was built to help your team members execute the different processes that they have to do every day from a food safety, guest readiness, and customer satisfaction perspective. We are, we are the ultimate job aid, guiding your team through everything they need to do to make sure the restaurant's ready to go and that the food is safe. And when your team is able to focus on the basics and self-manage that with our platform, then it frees you up to go out and focus on growing your business, on competing, on everything else, because you can rest assured that the that the restaurants are, are taking care of what needs to be taken care of and that the system will alert you if there's ever an issue. So check us out at opsanalytica.com and go get a demo and see how we can help transform your business and make your life easier. Hey, welcome to the Order Up podcast. Uh, this is Tommy Yanolis, I your host today, and we are doing an interview, which I'm excited about. So please allow me to welcome to the show today, Mr. Merck. Maddock, he is a restaurant ops professional. And how are you doing today, Merck? Tommy, I'm doing great. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for being on the show today. I, uh, as you guys know, I love doing the show and I'm always excited to get really interesting guests. And I think Merck is going to be super interesting because he's done a little bit of everything in the biz. And so Merck, just so you know, uh, the way the, the interview works is I ask everybody the same five questions. And um, we just kind of go through them and then I let you answer them. And then, you know, we see, just have some fun and have a nice conversation. That's kind of the plan. So having said that, uh, we'll kick it off with the first question, which is explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from your first job in the industry to where you are now. Okay, well, Tommy, well, let's, uh, let's take this through. So I'm 30 years in the restaurant industry. And as you could probably tell by my accent, not native to uh, the U.S. Um, so uh, I actually started back in London, um, in back end of the restaurants, literally starting on the pot wash in a small pizza chain called uh, Pizza Hut. Oh, wow. Um, and that's where I had the opportunity to really fall in love with the hospitality industry. Um, I'd recently graduated with a degree in science, life science. Uh, but looking for that first gig, uh, start paying the bills as such. Uh, and that's why I ended up in the first job uh, restaurant industry. Um, worked my way through that quite progressively, becoming a restaurant manager before having that opportunity to jump into uh, the UK head office. Um, and that was really the first opportunity of being able to seeing the inner workings or the biggest, bigger scale workings of restaurant systems and really fell in love with it. Um, I was in the technical department, leveraging the restaurant field skill sets uh, and being able to apply that with, uh, with all the new product systems uh, that ultimately hit the restaurant managers, um, being that final filter to make sure that systems and programs were manager or team member ready. Uh, written in a way that they could understand and execute effectively. Uh, that took me into next role, which was into same company, uh, still Young Brands Pizza Hut, uh, European division, uh, where I looked after uh, QA, core products, 
uh, all class class one vendors, uh, cutting programs, and product integrity. And that was really to ensure, obviously, product standards, execution were maintained for brand protection, guest protection, and ultimately to ensure that we had consistency of products executed across the European market. Um, had a great opportunity to move to Dallas to sit alongside the domestic team and look after global uh, new product development. Uh, working the StageGate process with a colleague, I picked up again all the operational execution through from commercialization with vendors, leveraging the experience of working with um, you know core uh, vendors in the past. Uh, and the goal there or the objectives was to launch products across the globe. Uh, products you may be familiar with uh, from the Pizza Hut lineup, uh, Cheesy Bites, um, mm -hmm. through to you know all those innovative products that they that they launched. So very much involved in the development, the concepts, um, through to commercialization, testing, launch, and ultimately the post-mortem, which is the one area of the stage gate process I think a lot of companies miss, you know, really understanding did the products deliver. Um, so from Dallas, next port of call was Miami. Um, I was able to uh, pick up a franchise uh, operations role um, as a consultant uh, for the Miami region. Actually, I say based in Miami for the South American Central and Caribbean region, uh, looking after just shy of 900 restaurants, 36 franchisees. And again, core objective there was brand protection and franchise success, uh, ensuring that franchise relationship with the core brand. And, in, and again, fundamentally ensuring the franchisee success. If they're successful, they continue to grow. Uh, and that's obviously the, uh, the benefit that we're looking for. Um, after Miami, uh, after a 10 year stint there, I actually changed brands. Uh, was looking to spend a little bit more personal time with the family, less travel, and had a great opportunity um, working for another huge restaurant organization, Dine Brands. Uh, on the Applebee's chain, um, and I picked up a op services role uh, where I was really looking after three elements. Uh, the reporting structure, which is everything from scorecards to core vendor management, uh, which will be, you know, the guest uh, service providers as well as the audit and compliance control there. Uh, communication, and particularly with the internal teams, field-based teams, and the franchisees to ensure that new systems, programs uh, were effectively communicated uh, to ensure that we had the runway needed to successfully launch. And then in addition to uh, strategic op ops programs, um, in particular will be the implementation of DPSs, the delivery or DSP, sorry, delivery service providers, Grubhubs, DoorDash, and so forth. So. That was my last uh, uh, current, uh, uh, say the, the career history as such, in a very short nutshell. Sure. Um, but, but very much from dishwash to effectively oversight of mm, just shy of 1,800 restaurants for the Applebee's brand. That's awesome. I, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this to you before we jumped on the call. I love... I love, love, love that this is the first question of the podcast uh, because 
I, I just always want people to remember, like, if you are a waiter, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, or if you're, you know, in the kitchen, that everybody in the restaurant industry, and this is not true of all industries, but like I would say most executives and leaders in the industry, they started off down in the trenches. And so it's not like one, it's not like other businesses where you might be able to come in and just take over a CEO. And the restaurant industry, it's so much about sweat equity and getting that experience in the trenches. So that's awesome. I, yeah, no, hold on, sorry. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree. I actually agree with you. I think the most people that I've respected leaders in the past, I think, have that ability to connect with all levels of the business. Uh, and to live that particular role um, and ground up the dishwash uh, right the way through, whether, as you say, server, uh, back of house in the kitchen, um, I think it's, a, it's something that I will always remember. And it helps definitely uh, as I continue doing market visits, visit, visiting restaurants. I respect the position that I hold, but more importantly, uh, the individuals that I meet. And, and I think it does show, as you, as you were referencing, a very unique industry that does allow for people to be able to, uh, you know, accelerate their careers um, and the sky's the limit in regards to, you know, working the system. Uh, it is such a fast moving industry. Uh, opportunities do come about. And, uh, you know, if you position yourself right, there is, there's no limit in regards to where you could end up. And I do know so many COOs, uh, you know, like myself that, that have all started, you know, in, in, a, in a very, uh, you know, entry level position, but just, you know, dedication, hard work and putting the time in and, uh, you know, have managed to really, really drive very successful careers. Absolutely. I mean, and, and this is one of those things too, and I have a couple of things I want to touch on, but I want to stay on this vein for a second. Like we have to protect the restaurant industry because it is one of the few industries I would say outside of being really good at sales that you can go and make a hundred to 150 K 200 K a year. Um, and you don't necessarily need to have a college degree, a college degree. And I have a hotel restaurant degree, but it's not nearly as prized in the industry, um, as the sweat equity part is, and just coming up through the ranks and learning every level, you know? And so we yep. do have, protect ourselves because it is a truly amazing opportunity and industry for people to get into and to get that vertical growth if they want to go all the way to the top and, uh, and you can do it. Um, and so, and I would say, when I say protected, I mean, we, we got to keep these restaurant chains viable and we've got to focus on the basics of running great restaurants and keep these restaurants profitable because then you can have, the great job with the great bennies and the great money and get some stock and maybe become an operating partner or, you know, whatever it is. So it is a cool deal. Um, so you mentioned a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Number one, product development at Pizza Hut, which basically I look at as how can I inject more cheese into different parts of the pizza? Would you agree with that? <laughs> We had an old joke. I had an old boss who had an old joke and he said, she said, sorry, very simply, it's nothing more than cheese on toast. That's the industry we're in. Um, 
I think you're right in simply saying how can you inject more cheese in, although the point being that cheese is the most expensive item on the pizza, being a protein base. So to be honest, yes, you're kind of right, um, but also obviously there's, there's much more to it in regards to understanding what people want. And I would say some of the challenges there was more around how do you bring uh, a different menu or a different occasion or different, um, how do you meet with consumer trends? Uh, yeah. and produce products that are relevant to both the audience or the the lifestyle. Um, I know we did a lot of work on pressured mums and you know how do you how do you get food to them or quick alternatives and that's more about convenience. Um, but then you do have those indulgent products uh, that come out, which is as you say, more cheese, more cheese. <laughs> um, but yes, it's a you know I, I was. It gets to a point when I think you can only do so much with with uh, with with dough and cheese, and then of course they come up with, with cheesy bites and cheesy twists and uh, and all these different variants. Um, they served a great purpose, and I'll be honest. In my opinion, the purpose was to continue to create media hype, news, new news. Uh, it, it allows the marketeers to bring that brand awareness uh, through new product and uh, innovation. And it does do a great job. It does, you know, does what it needs to do. Um, it's not the core part of the business, and it shouldn't be reflected as as being the drivers necessarily. But I do see them as ways to bring brand awareness, brand connectivity, try something new, uh, and it definitely kept Pizza Hut um, in the in in the public's eyes as the brand of innovation, the innovator brand, if you like, compared to the competition, Domino's, uh, which was very much around the speed of execution. Um, and consistency, and you've got them other big player, Papa John's, which for me was around that quality. They own the quality perception. Sure. Um, so yeah, a lot of fun in that stage gate process. A lot of innovation. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a really interesting part of the uh, of the business. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, you're the second person uh, on this podcast that has mentioned meal occasion, right? My a buddy of mine, John. He was on at the very beginning. He's a food consultant, and you know, it, he's always he's worked for some big brands too, Wendy's and a couple others, and, and and he works a lot with McDonald's and stuff. But you know, so many people are just in the industry are just shooting from the hip and going, "Hey, well, there'll be a lot of chicken available, like in third quarter, so it's chicken nuggets or whatever." And he's like, "No, nah, man, you have to back into it by, you know, who are we trying to target? What?" meal occasion are we trying to target them at like you were talking about like mothers maybe coming home from dick getting dinner on the table like maybe working mothers or whatever and then you know what product do they want us to provide them that's maybe healthy but also easy and this price point and it's the science that goes in behind these specials and it's not just hey chicken will be really cheap in december so let's just buy a lot of chicken you know yeah, no, I I agree. I think you you've got to be holistic in in regards to the approach. Um, I, I I there is some value in looking at supply chain, and particularly when products are available. And I'll reference something here. We did. I I know I worked in my very early days, very junior, but we do did a promotion back in a particular market for tricolored peppers. Um, so yellow, red, green peppers. Um, right. on the menu at the time, they only had green peppers. Um, it was a product by all accounts, you know, it was a great visual product and there was some consumer relevance behind it. 
um, the time when we did the testing, we did a lot of the 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 uh, financials. Um, tricolored peppers were in season. Great product. Um, there was a shift in the calendar, shift in the uh, the promotional launch. They launched the product um, at a slightly different window um, in a in a time called winter, which um, which you suddenly find that tricolored peppers don't grow in winter. So they ended up importing from Central South America at a huge cost in order to meet the demand and actually flipped the financials on its head in regards to trying to capitalize on a seasonal product in a non-seasonal time. So, uh, you know, the, there's just hundreds of stories out there where, um, yes, companies do look to capitalize on the seasonal elements but completely miss the mark and when they actually get the MPD or the, you know, the whole pipeline process set up and executed. But but yes, there's, you know, I, I think there is some value in it, but as you say, it has to be in line with the brand identity. Is it relevant to the brand? Um, and is it relevant to the guests? And is it what they're asking for? Otherwise, you're going to create a whole lot of work for very little reward. Absolutely. And I don't think people realize, and I was surprised about this too, how much, like, when you talk about these big chains, a Pizza Hut, a Wendy's, a McDonald's, you know, the big guys, 5,000 plus locations, you know, Domino's been there too. I don't think people realize the amount of planning goes into the supply chain alone just to get the product to every store, you know? And I mean, you're talking about these peppers and it's like, well, you use peppers. I go to the grocery store, there's peppers there all the time. Now I need 50, you know, whatever, uh, cratefuls, you know, I'm thinking of those shipping. Yeah carefuls and I need them to be fresh and I need them here tomorrow and cut and washed and distributed in bags to stores so they can start, you know, distributing. It, it's just, it's mind boggling the amount of food we're moving through these restaurant chains. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. The planning ahead in regards to, you know, the anticipated volumes. Um, there are some product lines I've seen here in domestic where they have literally cleaned out the entire domestic supply and stock of particular proteins, whether it be pork, chicken, not so much chicken, but pork in particular. Yeah. Um, and in order to try and get the backfill, you know, it's actually more of a question of we're going to have to postpone the, the launch. But, you know, on that point, I'm not in the coffee industry, and that's one area that I think would be a, a real kind of a supply chain challenge. Um, trying to manage the competition in that coffee industry today and making sure you secure your supply in advance. But yeah, supply chain management is uh, uh, is another, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate what those guys to go through and what they do in order to secure the product lineup because there's nothing worse as an operator in dealing with uh, outages. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, especially when you're running national advertising and you're bringing sure. people door around ads and coupons and then they're disappointed it's almost like a bait and switch you know it's like the, it's, yeah. the, it's the popeye's chicken sandwich and that wasn't even actually like their launch that was their test launch and they just right. got you know um, yeah I, and then and then just on the other end of that supply chain scale if they overestimate and they get too much product in you are potentially everything you made in the in the promotion you're losing in waste and uh, out of date product. Yeah, yeah, it is nuts. I actually yeah. had a sandwich and when mine was a little bit rubbery and I wasn't that psyched about it to be clear. I do want to touch on one thing. 
how miserable were you coming from England and then moving to Texas and then Miami from a humidity and heat perspective? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go one further. It was London, Texas, Miami, Kansas, and I'm now based in California. So the two, when you talk about humidity extremes, it's Miami and California. Oh, yeah. um, that's a pendulum swing. Um, the one thing that um, I've missed probably more than anything coming from England is the rain. Um, yeah. Although I got a lot of that in Miami. Um, but yeah, you know, um, the one thing I've always looked about uh, in reference to life philosophy is, is that life is an adventure, not a destination. Uh, I do feel privileged as, you know, I didn't but touch too much on some of the geographical states that I've lived in, but I have had that huge privilege of living in four different states and seeing a vast amount of the U.S., uh, you know, during that process and um, really enjoyed it. Uh, each city uh, has its own unique um, uh, elements. Um, and, you know, I'm the type of guy that basically will capitalize, really enjoy the time while I'm there um, and really maximize, you know, that experience. But, yeah, London to, to the U.S. is probably the big difference. And if I was, rather than going on the geography, it's probably more in the scale. Um, in London, you know, um, working for one of the biggest companies there with 600 restaurants, coming to the U.S. and seeing the domestic system at 7,500 units, it's a tenfold, you know, uh, jump in regards to scale. Um, and you start to apply that to, you know, what you did in regards to product launches. We talked about supply chain, operations, managing that type of volume of system uh, scale. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a vast difference. Um, that was the biggest difference that I ever noticed between uh, moving from London to U.S. You guys really know how to do things and do it big. <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of cool too because London's such a liberal, like cosmopolitan city, and then Texas, which is like the epitome of a, like the allowed American, right? Texas. Yeah, I'm not. US. I'm not going to sit here and offend any Texans on this who may be listening. Um, but you know, look, simply put, London is is historic. Um, you know, you easily have cities to compare: New York, Boston. You may be missing a few decades, a few centuries in there, but. Um, yeah, London is rich with culture. Um, uh, Texas was is in Dallas, where I was based, is a is a really really new city uh, for me. I know it's still 200 years old, um, but for me, that's a you know a blink in an eye when I look at London. I have a house back in England that's older than older than Dallas. Let's say that it's 300 years old. My sister lives in a place that's 500 years old. Uh, was built when Henry VIII was roaming the uh, roaming England. So moving to Dallas, um, you know, it's a new city. And, and again, this is where I, I, what I liked. It was a cosmopolitan uh, built city. Everything was new. Everything's purpose built based on today's modern society. Um, and so I, you know, really enjoyed the time there. Dallas, I found, was great for sports, restaurants, and shopping. Yep. Um, and if you enjoyed those things, you are right at home in Dallas. We, uh, I've got family down there, and so we were there this last summer. Loved it. Right, I'm going to switch gears and go back. I want to go to Applebee's really quickly because I want to know how delivery is working for Applebee's, if, you, if you're allowed to talk about it. 
Um, look, I think at a high level, the um, the premises and it's the industry changed. I don't think this is unique to Applebee's, but we'll obviously reference that um, because that's where I have a lot of experience. Um, the industry changed, in particular for the casual dining restaurants um, that, as you know, have been struggling uh, for the past five plus years, and particularly with the chase of the millennials. Um, the whole premise around convenience, uh, meal replacement, um, and 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 people almost, I would like to say, wanted to create their own ambience. Um, may may not like some of the experience they were having within the restaurants, whether it be the decor, the service, or the execution. Um, and in particular with with uh, modern society, where people have now Netflix at home, widescreen TVs, they've created that you know that that environment that they like. Why would you not spend it there? Um, and therefore, the whole off-premise consumption was becoming uh, a significant part of any business model. Uh, casual dining, I think, was slow to adopt. Uh, when you look at some of the QSR players in the industry, pizza in particular, uh, which was obviously very, very synonymous with with a with a delivery kind of experience. Um, casual dining restaurants were able to capitalize now on the growth of Ubers, DoorDash, Grubhubs, uh, to name a few. Um, and so it's, it was a natural partnership. Um, a lot of those companies were looking for, obviously, uh, their segment uh, working very uh, well in partnership with uh, big brands like Applebee's um, and, you know, casual dining uh, uh, within the casual dining arena. Um, the experience that these guys brought to the table, I think, was, was great. Um, the challenge, I think, was the financial models, and we can get into some of that. Uh, and um, but by all accounts, I think it was a no-brainer for all the businesses, you know, the restaurant industry, to really capitalise on that growing um, uh, consumer need and trend. Um, you've got these young professionals now in the workforce, um, cooking less and less at home, looking for that convenience and willing to pay for it. And so, you know, if you if you're not in or working with um, some kind of off-premise um, delivery service provider, I think it's just uh, you know you're on the you're on the dinosaur list. You're going to become extinct very quick, unfortunately. Sure. Cool. I mean, I know you're interested in some of the volumes, but I would simply say that mm, I think you'll be looking at between a low end of twenty to a high end of forty, fifty percent depending on the business, but casual dining restaurants, um, anywhere up to 30, 40% will ultimately be your off-premise mix within the next two, three years. Sure. And then, I mean, obviously with scale too, um, with scale, you know, you can negotiate better pricing and get some of those delivery fees out. Ultimately, I feel like where this is all going to shake out is that you are going to like I know right now, like you might pay a small delivery fee for Grubhub, and then the Grubhub charges the restaurant for you know a, a percentage, right, so that they can make their money in the middle and compensate the drivers. But I, what I suspect we're going to see is that you know it, it's it's really painful for the restaurants when the percentage is too high, obviously. So I think. I think people are going to end up paying more at the end. The consumer is going to end up paying more for the convenience of having this stuff delivered 
um, because I, I, I don't see how the restaurants can continue to eat the uh, all of, I mean, if, if you don't even get into your contribution margin on the meal, then what are you really doing? You're just moving product through your restaurant at that point. So you got these guys have to be able to make a little bit of money and cut through their fun, their fixed costs, you know, to make this worthwhile. So I always thought that Applebee's, obviously I'm not like a restaurant designer or anything, but I always felt like Applebee's should just lean into the fact that they were really popular in the 80s. Play 80s music, put Pac-Man machines in, you know, like 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 almost like the 50s diner. Just be like, hey, we're the we were the coolest place in the 80s. And they, by the way, the 80s are really cool. You should come back and hang out with us. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Let's go to the next question. Uh, what is the big project initiative that you're working on right now? So one of the things that I was uh responsible for was reporting. Um, really is defined by the scorecards, a uh, more familiar term, um, which was great. I mean, it's providing data, where are you at, and you know, what's happening. Um, it was responsible for providing that information to both the franchise community as well as really the internal um, consultants. When I took it, uh, took on the role um, and that responsibility, one of the biggest challenges that I felt was that just sending out data was really a very small part of the, the challenge. Um, the paradigm that I was working on was really uh, data, insight, and action. And what I wanted to do was to develop a much more robust consultancy tool, uh, really being able to gather all the data and present it in an insightful way that enabled the consultants now to lead the action. Um, so one of the biggest projects that, that we that we rolled out was um, basically a we called it a, a an experience tracker. The purpose of this was really to provide our consultants with a one-stop shop for all the relevant KPI information required but in a way that was trend-driven. So rather than providing them a slice in time, a monthly or a quarterly update, here are your numbers. It was basically mapped out with a two-year track. Uh, and within that, compared it to a bench system, you know, benchmarks, whether that system or a particular, within a particular group. Uh, Restaurant-level data, um, so they had all the information um, uh, and they had it presented in a way that was actionable. What that did was it helped engage, um, allowed the consultants to be much more relevant and engaging with the franchisees, but at the same time, identify the top three drivers that would support the business. And the business really was that, we were, that I was focused on was the guest experience um, and the compliant met metrics, i.e. the audits, whether it's an internal or the third party external audits. Uh, bringing that all together, adding a sales component metric to it so they could see the cause and effect of scores against sales impact. And from that, uh, was able to really drive double-digit improvement in guest metrics and also compliance scores in particular around the failure rate. Um, and again, simply put, data management in a way that allowed for the consultants and the field team to really capitalize on what needed to be done, what was going to make a difference. And some of the biggest challenge I think we I found in the business was that data is not the problem. 
we've got data. It's do you have a team that can interpret it, identify what's the root cause, and from that put a plan in place to drive that performance change? Um, and so the end result was we have a, a very robust in-house um, consultancy tool um, that really, really supported the, um, the improvements uh, within the guest and also brand protection uh, components. Um, some of the real impact from a business standpoint, and this is more for your senior guys, um, was that by effectively providing a one-stop shop, we saved at least eight hours a week per consultant in the field uh, from retrieving data and interpretation. From this tool, uh, they could really, they could track the data, they could track the insights, but they could really lead to action. We saved about eight hours a person a week, and that's for the size of the system was nearly half a million dollars worth of savings in regards to efficiencies. I didn't save labor, I just turned it from being somebody sitting in the home office to now sitting in front of a franchisee driving change. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, obviously, you know, we're Ops Analytica. We are all about collecting restaurant data, you know, and making it actionable and tagging it and making sure that, you know, there's that you actually know what the data is telling you, if it's good or bad. And I, from day one, have been like, you guys can't look at just the ops data and and you know, we have a whole model around this but like you know i just you can't look at just the ops data in and of itself it's got to be tagged against the sales data it's got to be tagged against the cost data um you know the customer satisfaction data all these other attributes because they're all telling the story because what most people do in the restaurant industry especially when they don't have a good feed of operations data that they can use that they just back into operations efficiency based off of costs. They say, well, we'll look at customer complaints, which is just the 5% of crazy people who love you or hate you. And then um, we'll look at your cost structure and from those two things and maybe a quarterly audit, we can figure out, how, we can assume you're operating this well, you know? But yeah, but I agree too. It's so much more about the trend because oftentimes too, the, like if you just look at a slice of the data in this business, you don't know, you know, you can't look at any given week or two weeks or a month because you just don't know what happened. You know, like things are weird. Like, I don't know, there was a big tournament by your restaurant. And so you had way more business that you didn't really earn. It was just in the area and it came in. And so now your sales are either going up, but they weren't really going up. It's just, you had this fluke month, you know what I mean? So you just need to be able to look at it over long periods of time, put a trend line on there, and then go, wait a second, is this actually moving up or down? You know, because looking at it in two small segments, really. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, look, and the other thing here is, is that the, I, I don't think people take as much consideration into the seasonality impacts. Yeah. Um, and to give you an idea, um, I, I used to kind of run a, a, a uh, when I was in the MPD product development pipeline, um, I'd run, try and run two, four core windows a year. Two of those are value, two of those are uh, premium. And I don't think that's different from most people in, in how they run their you know, product launches. The premise here obviously is, is that value is typically January, right after the holiday season when people are <clears throat> broke. Mm -hmm. um, 
and again in September after well when kids are going back to school. Yeah. Premium windows are November, December in the lead up to the holiday season and again in the summer months, uh, June, July, August. The premise being here, if there is a social trend already when we know that there is a value, uh, you know, people are, value, are consciously aware of finances um, and then you've got at the same time, you know, people are, are more flush with money. Um, that in itself is going to impact perceptions. Um, they you know, what they expect to get when they, when they hit a restaurant. And so, for example, if they're turning up to a restaurant and they are, you know, in a value kind of penny pinching kind of m m mode, they'll make decisions or their, their feedback scores are going to be reflected. Again, all the um, guest feedback scores are very much around a feeling. In, you know, in the past, you'd have a question that says, did you receive your food within five minutes or 10 minutes? Yes or no. Now the questions are written, did you receive your food within, an ex within a, uh, a reasonable time? And so that's very subjective based on the individual. And when you start adding seasonality as well as, you know, the individual, then all these scores start to take, a, a, take on a different meaning. And therefore, looking at the trend data and comparing that against a system benchmark um, is going to give you a much more holistic picture versus, in, as we we're saying, a slice in time. Um, you know, and we've launched products and, and instantly seen um, guest metrics fluctuate and it's all, oh, that's because of the product. Well, there's a lot of variable factors that start coming into that. And that's where the, the data mining and the research and the understanding, what did that product have an impact on versus seasonality or other events that were happening? Oh, by the way, yeah, you launched that product, but you took price at the same time. What had the, what, what impacted the guest reaction to say that it was you know, a good or bad experience. But it becomes very, very uh, um, convoluted or, or very, you know, the variable factors are huge in regards to, you know, really coming down to what are the key drivers and guest satisfaction. Uh, that's super interesting. Um, cool, man, I'm gonna move to the next question. Uh, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that is keeping you up at night? Wow. I'm going to jump on a bit of a sidetrack. I'm going to simply say CFOs. Oh, interesting. Hit me. I want to know this. So I'm going to simply say CFOs that are in the helm. Um, I always worry when a CFO starts taking the CEO role. Um, they're brilliant people, don't get me wrong. I love CFOs, uh, but I have sometimes found in my experience that when a CFO is now in the driver's seat, uh, the business model takes on a slightly different um, approach. And I don't want to knock any CFOs that are out there at the helm. I just find that sometimes managing a business through a P&L is very different from managing it from a people or an ox or more importantly from a guest you know perspective um it's very potentially very easy to take a company that's not doing so well make a few changes and see a positive um p l financial report at the end of the year yeah raise prices reduce portion cut the team um and I think that you can deliver a short-term win, uh, but I often fear that the long-term, the two, three, four-year strategy goes out the window. Um, 
you know, this is when uh, maybe the, it was tough calls, but this is when you, I've seen, you know, uh, uh, teams being cut as a result of, you know, decisions to, um, you know, to, to try and make a, a more profitable or deliver um, more uh, to the stock or IPOs and, and so forth. Now, I fully understand that is the nature of the business and where we are today. Uh, but if you're asking me what keeps me up at night is um, companies that, that, that put CFOs at the helm in order to, you know, salvage or save the business. Uh, I sometimes worry that some of the decisions that will be made will be short term with a long term implication. I, it's the start of the end for me sometimes. Well, and I would just tag on that. So I worked at Quiznos uh, in 08, 09. I was in ops. And then as we were downsizing, because we were having a lot of problems, obviously, I heard the beginning of their implosion. And, you know, they, and, and we had, and we were the epitome of that because we had to make sure we made all of our ratios, you know, for our debt service and so that our loans would get caught and all that stuff. And so at one point, we laid off the entire field team. The entire field organization, at that point, I mean, we've gone from maybe 125, 130 down to like 75, 80 guys for like 40, 500 restaurants. So that's that's a large number of stores per guy just there. But at one point during the summer, like 09, or it would have been like spring, summer, we laid up everybody in the field organization and then hired them back as independent contractors and just paid them to go audit stores for two months. And we were solely doing that just to move money around the P&L. Um, and it was nuts. But here, here's what I will say, and I, I would agree with you, where I find that an over-exuberance in, in the uh, financial sort of metrics of the business is in the food optimization. And, you know, it starts off, and this happens as a question all the time too, a vendor comes in and says, hey man, got this turkey and we put like, you know, 3% more collagen beaks and feet in this thing. Um, it tastes the same, but it's, you know, two cents cheaper a pound. And, and you know, you go, and then the people in the, the supply chain guys go, hey, that's a good idea. We should do that. And then all of a sudden you go, okay, well, that's fine if it's just the turkey. But then all of a sudden it's the bread, it's the lettuce, it's the turkey, it's the cheese, it's every condiment. And now you, you feel gross every time you eat the food. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're like, oh, everything is just like, been so highly optimized that you just don't even feel wrong. So we called that death by pinprick. Yeah. So if you took, you know, over the years of, of let's say, cost optimization, um, reducing certain specs or, or, or tweaking recipes. Now, as you say, each each change and tweak, it, it may well realize you the, you know, the difference in the financial models. And, and I'm not sitting here saying that, uh, that the pressure on the industry hasn't been huge over the last decade in regards to, you know, uh, increased costs, labor costs, uh, rental costs, and just the cost of operations. So obviously, there has to be improvement in order to be more viable, more profitable, and particularly with the franchisees to ensure that you have a, an attractive, growing um, brand that's going to help them help you. Um, but when you look at products from, let's say, their initial launch to what they've evolved to over the 10 years, that's where you see the difference. But each little, each little innovation or each little change over that 10-year period, the guest doesn't notice. And I used to run a lot of research side-by-side uh, -side products with slight, slight different recipes here and there. And, you know, the guest very rarely picks up a very, you know, subtle nuance. 
Um, and then, you know, the next six months you're doing another one and then another one. And um, before you know it, um, you've got two very different products or, you know, from the original launch to what you have today. Um, and there are some companies that go back to that original recipe and, and so forth. And, um, but by all accounts, yeah, it's part of the business, uh, but it's a risky part, um, you know, that, that can definitely, you know, leave you with uh, misconceptions. Yeah, and I mean, and you're right. They do it across the board on everything, and all of a sudden, you're yeah, you, know, you lay a bunch of people off. You know, you don't. They and all you're doing a lot of that time too, just is you're just moving money around P and L. You're just moving it from one category, which affects EBITDA or you know affects whatever ratio someone's looking at, and then you just move it to another category. Uh, you know, like uh, like whatever, like uh, future benefit payments or something that sits somewhere else. And so then you keep your core ratios good for the investors or in most cases these days, private equity funds, right? But then you're not really changing anything. You know, you're just moving it around and, and monkeying around. And, and at the end of the day, you know, and this has been what we've been really focusing on with people too, is like at some point, if you optimize everything too much, then you cannot execute on the basics of being a good restaurant. And when you, and there's a tipping point, and when you cross that tipping point where you no longer are executing on just, you know, the basics, just the basics, clean bathrooms, you know, not sticky menus, food that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, you know, nice service, whatever it is, it's the bare minimum when you can't do that anymore and you can't pull that off across thousands of units, then all of a sudden, you're, you're touched. The chain can no longer function and you just start to nosedive down because no matter what lever you pull, what advertising or whatever you're going to do to drive people in or give them another sales channel like delivery or carry out or whatever it is, if, if you're not able to just execute on the basics, then all those levers don't work anymore, you know, and you, and you can't, you can't get yourself out of the nosedive and it takes 10 times longer to gain customers back once they've had a bad experience than it does to just have a bad experience once they might not come back for months. So it's, it's very scary to see what's happening right now and the amount of pressure and the amount of pressure that these PE firms and are putting on these chains to because all they care about is selling this thing three years, right? I bought you in three years. I got to make 25% and get you out the door. Sell you to the next guy. So it's very, it's messed up. Um, okay. Uh, oh, what is the one thing that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Well, you know, you just touched on a handful of things. Um, and, uh, and I think the industry, there's a lot of things they could be doing. Digital is one of the big, big, big areas. And what I mean by digital, I think a lot of the restaurant companies are now starting to realize their digital, um, uh, you know, uh, technologies and digital platforms aren't where they need to be and starting to invest uh, heavily within that. That's the POS systems and so forth. Sure. Um, so that, I think that migration is starting to happen slowly, but, 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 but you know, they're getting there. But, but on the points that you mentioned, I think there's the thing as an operator, it's the, it's the guests and the team members. Um, the guest at the end of the day is what we're looking to do. And, you know, you touched on a few things there around what is it the guest really wants? At the end of the day, for me, it's give me great food at a great price 
with great service in an ambience that I feel comfortable in. And it's not much more than that. I mean, the brand has its own identity, its own menu and, and what they want to do. But at the end of the day, boil it down to give me great service, give me great food in an, in a, in, in an ambience that I, that I, that I, that I enjoy. Um, and I'll come back. Yeah, and it's that and it's that challenge that, that, that you know that, that the you know of delivering that. And with that, it's the team member that owns that experience. Um, I always like to preach this uh, service philosophy, which was around anticipated service. And what I mean by that is, don't wait for the guest to stick their hand up and ask you for a refill, or for another napkin, or because they dropped the fork on the floor you should almost anticipate those elements and be on point and guide the guests through the experience that they, that they have come in for. Um, and I don't know if the, you know, sometimes the team members aren't empowered or they're not trained. Um, but I've always been a, you know, a big one on that primarily because I know what I'd like to do when I go into a restaurant, I'd like to be able to, as I mentioned before, go in, have that, have that wow experience not have to complain, not have to coach the server through my experience, i.e. I'm ready to order now. Um, I'm ready to, you know, to have a, a drink refill now, or I'm ready for the bill now. It should almost be anticipated. The server should almost be one step ahead of the guest all the way down the line. Um, and so for that, I know that we talk about blended learning platforms, and particularly with the new workforce that's coming in, uh, very much on a digital interface, either hiring, the um, recruitment process, right the way through to training uh, and onboarding and, and everything. Um, but there's something in there that I think that the U.S. service industry in particular, which by all accounts, when I was in England working out of that, it was it was it was aspirational to be, you know, you know the the U.S. hospitality um, model. You know, uh, sitting on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, I, you hear the Disney's of the world and, and, and how the you know, great service, great hospitality and this experience and how exciting it is. And when I first arrived in the U.S., I'd definitely say that, you know, you guys led the globe on what great hospitality, restaurant service, restaurant experience uh, should be. I fear that the financial models, the pressures of the industry um, have bore hard on it, and as a result, um, I feel that you know other 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 countries, as such, um, are leading now in more of that kind of expected um, you know experience that um, that guests are looking for. Um, so you know, in short, what, what do I think that the industry should be doing? It should be focusing slightly more on the guest and that absolute experience. Uh, and in particular, um, the team members and are they delivering that? Um, and I think that we, you know, you, you, one often looks at the restaurant from a slightly higher level. Is it clean? Is it inviting? Is everything executed well? But to actually sit down as a as a guest, uh, unknown guest, let's say, and really see what's happening, um, I think people will be surprised. And I think that's why sometimes it's reinforced that off premise. You know, why would I go and sit in a in a in a, in a dirty restaurant? Uh, have poor, you know, have a, you know, poor service experience and food that's, you know what, I can take that home and, 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 and create that, all those elements behind, you know, uh, myself. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to go to a restaurant and have it end with me trying to speak to a manager and complaining about a certain thing. That's not why I went to the restaurant. And if that's the case, hey, 
uh, I'm, I, I'm, I've unfortunately fall into the category of what 70, 80 percent of the population. I'm a silent defector. Sure. Well, I go into a rest. If I don't have the experience that I was hoping for, um, you know what? If I get the opportunity to speak to a manager in, in, in you know, in, in a way, uh, great. But, but outside of that, I have a choice as a guest now. I don't need to visit you. There's so much op options, and, and uh, you know, I just, I just may not visit, you know, revisit the, the restaurant. And today, it's absolutely fundamental that you deliver that wow experience to drive the loyalty or the, the repeat experience. And as you mentioned, you have one bad experience, you tell what eight to ten people. You have a great experience, you may say tell one person. And I would go even harder on that in today's in today's social media. You have a bad experience, you tell your followers. Absolutely. Well, and I, how do you, but I want to tag this really quickly because, you know, and I obviously don't run a restaurant anymore. I haven't managed a restaurant in quite a few years, but I, even when I was managing the restaurant, like labor and people know calling, no showing, oh, that was such a problem. And now we're, everyone talks labor, 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 and labor costs are going up as like the liberal states are putting more, you know, crazy rules on everything and making it harder and harder for the restaurant people. Um, just the managers, just to manage all of its insanity, but then the costs are going up. But one of the things that I'll find me and my business partner are talking about all the time is like, we'll just pay more and charge more, right? But like, like you have to have, you know what I'm saying? Like, how does labor play into this? Because what I feel like, and I'm, I'm not really doing a good job of asking this question, which is a bad trait for a podcast host, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, I, I feel like we have to reorganize how we deliver the service in the restaurant, right? To accommodate for getting those star employees and keeping them well compensated enough that they stay and also deliver the experience. Like, I don't know that you need to have one waiter managing four tables. You might need to have two really good waiters that take all the orders for every table in the restaurant, but then there's a team of worker bees that are going around delivering food, getting water, cleaning plates off behind them, but then you can afford to pay those two waiters maybe 15 bucks an hour plus tips because they, they're so personable and great you know, you need that guy in there because they're going to make the wow experience. Like, I don't know that we can expect that every waiter is going to get the wow experience when they're on average working for 44 days before they quit. So I'm with you. Look, the bottom line is what, what does it cost today to bring in uh, a new hire and, and get them trained for, you know, for, for work? Uh, yeah. I think the cost is what, two, three thousand dollars a yeah. team member? Yeah. So look, there's you know with the with the rate of turnovers that we've got, um, or the industry is experiencing, which is anywhere up to 200 plus, uh, you know, turnover, you know, within you know within the restaurant, which is which is high. I think the industry norms are nearer the 140. Uh, but when you're when you're running high and running against that, obviously you're just you're just you're spending money in areas that's just repetitive. Yeah. The question to your point is, and this is why I was mentioning, you know, what is the restaurant industry doing? What it should be doing? And if and if we know these facts and we know that, you know, re retention is the key element here, 
Um, a sign of a good company for me is somebody who's doing a company that's basically getting feedback from the team member rather than second guessing what they think they should do or how to improve accommodations or you know uh, work-life conditions. Um, getting that feedback because you know there may be some very different ways to motivate um, to retain. It's not money is money is the key driver. Don't get me wrong, but you give somebody a pay rise six months later, they're asking for another one. Yeah. There are other ways to create a uh, a culture within an organization to retain or, or you know, incite, invigorate um, team members today. Um, so I've always liked to gather that feedback whenever I'm in market and restaurants is, is to talk to the team members, understand what they like. And I always ask three questions to the managers. Is, is, is it what three things could I do to improve your your job, your life, your, you know, uh, restaurant? Sure. And, work, and work through those to understand and listen to understand from the people that are on the front line. I, it's not my job. It's my job to facilitate the process to understand what their needs are. But I'm not going to go down and tell them what I think they, their needs are. That would be very um, presumptuous of me in that in that regard. But but I think that organizations that, that talk, that walk the talk, let's say, you can talk about having a great culture, but let me see it. And, and how do you really bring that to life? And does that culture hit everyone in the organization or just a few? Um, you know, is it meaningful? Is it relevant? And does it actually drive, um, you know, what you're after? The retention and the, you know, the, you know of, of maintaining your team members, your good team members. Um, there's a lot of technology out there today. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, team member engagement uh, apps. Um, and that was another thing we did, which was to bring not so much gamification. I spoke with uh, with uh, Jordan before uh, yeah. on your team about gamification. We had a great conversation about it. But the question mark for me was, can the restaurant industry get into some way to really engage the team member? Not One thing is around the brand itself. And yes, is the restaurant doing well? But more importantly, what's your piece of this? How are you as an individual uh, playing a role? Uh, and what I mean by that is um, we were able to work with um, a very interesting company. I think there's several out there um, that brought a lot of the guest metrics, the, the individual surveys that guests completed. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to capture that, present that to the individual team members so they could get direct feedback. Sure. Um, the intent there was obviously very much on the positive side of it to drive the recognition culture, uh, to praise reward. And obviously it really helps identify, allows the managers to identify their aces. Um, there is a downside that it can be used as a dis disciplinary tool, but, but on the positive side of it, there are some great ways out there today that can really help an organization bring engagement to um, to the individual. And I think that's where I feel this, this a lot of the movement in the industry has been. When you look at the whole upsurge of fast casual, allowing the guests to basically pick and choose the items they want on their, on their food, but in a very, very fast and efficient way uh, through obviously Chipotle is one of the leaders within that segment. But it's all about that personalization, engaging the individual not the not the team as such um what's in it for me and uh following up with that constant reward and recognition and if you've got a great program in there 
Um, I worked in, 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 you know, my recent stop where the recognition side of it was um, very light. Um, but when we introduced a, a very robust tool supported with um, cards of thank you cards and, and, and other uh, recognition components, we saw again that engagement um, level from servers uh, and back of house team members just spike. And as a result, you know the uh, the saying that the guest experience will never outweigh the team member experience. Meaning yeah. that if the team member comes to the table with a big smile on their face, how's everything going today? Great to have you in here. You know that just instantly uh, migrates to the guests. You know their faces light up. I love to see that when I go into a restaurant. Uh, versus someone, hey, you ready to take your order? I'll give you a few. I'll give you a few more minutes. Let me come back. No, that was your few more minutes to help the guests guide them through the menu, take them on the journey. Oh, have you tried this? Have you? Oh, we just launched this. That's the stuff that I'm looking for. Um, and I'm, you know, that's where I, I try and get companies excited to engage that team member because they are the face of the company. You know, it's. I could, we can talk about this for five more hours uh, because I'm very passionate about this part. And, you know, I work at very, so I was at waiter at Dick's Last Resort. This is in the late 90s, I mean, a long time ago. 20, couple, yeah, 22 years ago, I guess. I was a waiter at Dick's Last Resort because I was a stand up comic and I was goofing off and I would just be mean to people, but they always had a good time. It was fun and I made great money. It was a good time. Then I went to, then I went to PF Chang's where I was a waiter there too for a while. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I really bought into the Chang's culture and it was so much about like, you know, we call it the limo ride where you would order for people and you would just pick up the best items. And now every time I did it, I'd always make like 30% tip. Um, but like, but I really bought into the Chang's culture and I ended up being a national trainer and ended up managing some stores and I, you know, I kind of, the whole path, uh, at PF Chang's and, um, and I, myself as a manager, always, my biggest tool was always just saying thank you. Just say thank you to everybody. You're doing a great job. That's all I really tried to do. And, and I was very successful with that. But that was just me innately wanting to do that. And, you know, as we know, the manager of the restaurant, like, instead of training the employees around the recognition, we obviously want them to be good and, and whatnot. But I really do think we have to spend more time coaching these managers on how to create the culture. Because what happens is, you know, training at corporate goes, okay, this is our culture. Because our culture was gleaned from the first five restaurants that we opened, you know, 50 years ago in this town. And now we have this culture and these are our points and wow and, you know, all the different steps and everything. But where I think where we really fall down is we train managers all day long on how to run the register system and how to do the cash out and how to use the scheduling system. And, you know, this is what the food's supposed to look like, but we don't equip these guys with the ability to create a culture. And everybody who's been in the restaurant industry for more than two weeks has seen a restaurant that had an amazing GM was cranking across the board. That GM left, the assistant gets promoted and every and it turns the entire restaurant over, sales dive, you know what I mean? And so, so yep. much of that success on the culture delivery part has to be trained to the manager and help them get that ability to create that because that's the most important thing. Everything comes from that manager, the retention, the, the service you deliver, your everything comes from that. And the managers are only staying 100 and 
I have a stat somewhere. It's like 104 days right now. So on average, you know, I don't know. So yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, recognize the employees, but you gotta teach these guys how to do it. Yeah. How to create. It. And the other, and the other thing is, gotta come top down. Yeah. Um, nothing worse than having corporate say, yeah, here's our cultural program. You go and live it. Um, we wrote it. You live it. Um, you know, and, and they don't do anything. There's no walk the talk. Um, you can't shadow the leader. Uh, all those elements that come in. And, and you know, you, we look up and, you know, to, to be inspired or aspired by, by these great leaders. And, and if they're not living that culture as well, then it just becomes a very, a very hollow kind of uh, element to it. So, you know, having that absolute alignment across the brand and everyone living and breathing the same elements really helps it stick and bring it to life in a meaningful way. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap that one up now. And then uh, I got one more question for you because I know we're getting a little bit long here and I want to make sure that we're respectful of your time. Uh, recount, recount, the last question for the thing today is recount the funniest thing that's happened to you in your career. And it can just be a funny story or it can be like one of those like groaner stories or, you know, whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to necessarily be hilarious. It just, I just want to hear like a really good story. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll give you, let me give you this one and then uh, there's a slightly longer one if there's time for missing. Um, so I spent most of my career on the international uh, sector. So I've done 108 markets. I've filled three passports in five years. I'm million miler with, with American. We're based out in Miami and the region itself was obviously Central South and Caribbean market. And we were hosting an executive visit from the corporate corporate office, um, a relatively new executive coming on board and filling his travel agenda. So we were hosting for the week and we thought we'd fly out to one of our markets, a very good market out in Costa Rica. Love the franchisee team down there. So we'd sent the details off and we're sitting at the airport waiting for the flight for this executive's flight to come in because obviously we were flying from two different locations coming into the into the city and in any case um we 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 you know we, time's gone on and so we text the gentleman and said okay you know um, how's it going we we you know we're waiting for you he says well i i'm here i'm i'm here i you know i've landed i've arrived where are you we said, well, we're waiting outside the airport, um, you know, the small group of us here. And he said, well, I'm outside the airport. I can't see you. Backwards and forwards for a few, uh, few more uh, conversations until we realized that we're in San Jose, Costa Rica, and he's in San Jose, California. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> There's always the joys of, of underestimating, um, you know, someone's geographical worldly knowledge, not realizing that there are two San Jose's in the world. In fact, there's probably more, but yeah, we were, we were sitting in a completely different country. Anyway, needless to say, it was a, it was a, we had to reschedule the visit. Oh, that's hilarious. That is a really great story. Hey, Mark, I want to thank you so much for being on the Order Up podcast today. Um, thank you so much for the time. I think it was a great interview and I look forward to hanging out with you again soon. 
Tommy, the pleasure was mine. I really appreciate the you know the time. Great conversation. Um, anytime, I'm I'm here for you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, take care, and thank you guys for listening to the Order Up podcast. Take care, guys.